0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Michael Hanna about the new book, Extinctions, living and dying in the margin of Ever*. Are we now entering a mass extinction event? Analysis of the fossil record suggests that we still have some time to avert the disaster, but we must act now. Well, Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, how are you? How's your weekend?
1: Oh, it's, it's been an interesting weekend. There's been a, a neighbor whose pets have escaped, and we've uh, had to help them round it up this afternoon. But um, other than that, it's been just like any other Wellington weekend.
0: A bit of adventure there. <laughs>
1: the temperature is miserable um, it's uh, i think got up as far as 10 degrees today but the uh, at least the rain held off we've had horrendous uh, rain and wind over the last few weeks and today it's been cloudy but not too bad we're getting fantastic sunsets though uh the tongan volcano that blew up a few months ago a few weeks ago rather um has pushed particles into the stratosphere and the sunsets are absolutely gorgeous—the reds and oranges and pinks. It's beautiful.
0: Oh, I'm, wow. going miss them
1: when they, uh, I'm going to miss them when the, I'm uh, going to miss them when the particles fall out of the stratosphere.
0: But it's such an interesting sort of side effect of the eruption, isn't it?
1: <laughs> it it really is. My um, my wife and I uh, have been noticing these sunsets for a while, and then uh, it didn't dawn on us that the problem, that the reason we're getting them is uh, this volcanic eruption.
0: Mm. So can you tell us what do you do?
1: Well I was a, 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 a associate professor at Victoria University of Wellington here in Wellington, obviously. Um, I've recently retired but I'm still teaching part-time there for a while and I still have some research projects to keep going. Um, I, I started some with uh, some colleagues in in the Netherlands a few, uh, a couple of years ago, and, and I still have to finish that one off. So I'm still involved with the university, although officially I'm retired.
0: And what do you focus on in your field?
1: It, it I'm, I'm, I'm what's officially called a palynologist. Um, uh, that's a, a person who studies acid in soluble microfossils. So uh, basically what we do is get a rock and we dissolve it in, um, uh, acids particularly particular acid called hydrofluoric acid and i look at the um op- organic remains that come out of that largely it's spores and pollen but the stuff i concentrate on is a, is a group called the dinoflagellates which are uh, marine algae or largely marine algae and if you've if you've ever seen those fantastic pictures of um waves coming in at night and going bright blue um due to bioluminescence that's um dinoflagellates uh, that are responding to being disturbed and they also cause a lot of the shellfish poisoning around the globe but they're also really useful for determining climates, past climates and past um, time. We can actually use them to date date rocks and I've done a lot of work on them um, through some drilling projects in Antarctica uh, which has just been a fantastic experience.
0: And what do you like about academia and why did you <laughs> choose it?
1: <laughs> why did I choose it? That's a actually it's a really good question. Because I um when I finished my doctorate, um I went straight into industry. I actually worked for an oil company for, for 10 years until they decided they didn't want any panology. But I've always had this this hankering to be involved with with academic projects. And and I I really, really um Love teaching, and i I've I will miss that immensely as as my retirement actually cuts in. Um, the interactions with students and and dealing with both undergraduate and postgraduate students, I, I I've that just been a joy um, for my entire career in the university.
0: And what would you say to our student listeners and perhaps early career researchers?
1: What do I say? That's that's a hard one. Um, <laughs> For students, I think, I, I don't know what is happening over in, in Switzerland, but, but our students have, because of the pandemic, have become almost divorced from the university. They're, they're, they're seeing it through Zoom or they're seeing it through videos and, and they're not, I don't think they're getting the full university experience. So I would really encourage them to go back into the universities when they have a chance and mix with other students, mix with different people, mix with different um, groups. Um, expand their horizons, which is not—they're not getting the opportunity to do that anymore. For early academics, um, I have to feel sorry for them in in, in many ways. Um, I I got the job and I had no research publications. Nowadays, the the, the is so driven by publications hmm. that um, it's really difficult for them to to actually get a, a position at a at, at university, I know that uh, an a ex-PhD student of mine has done, um, she's got a really good position now, but um, it, it, she had to leave New Zealand to do it, because um, there's just nothing available to her at all in New Zealand, and that's I found that really quite sad.
0: So your latest book is Extinctions, Living and Dying in the Margin of Error. So how did you go into writing it?
1: it's it's been an interesting journey um i i had a friend who worked at at victoria many years ago um and we used to run joint uh courses together he was in the philosophy department i was in geology but he he is an extraordinary person he um knew more about biology and geology than a lot of people i knew and and we, we used to do joint courses on mass extinctions and he he said to me one day, you know, you really should write a book about these things. And it sort of hit me in the back of the head and it sat there for a while. But there are an awful lot of books about um, mass extinctions, about what caused each one of them. And they, they sort of work through them. And there are some very good ones. So I thought, no, that's not really a, a goer. That's not really going to be a possibility. So I, I still had this now this seed planted for writing a book. So my original plan was to write this enormous magnum opus discussing um, the entire history of diversity through time from the earliest life through to the present day. Um, and it it became quite clear quite early on that this was too big a job for, for one person and mm-hmm. it would require a, 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 um, a book about you know, twice the size of War and Peace. But there was also a, a guy who worked with me from the Auckland University Press who kept saying, well, why would people want to read this? Why would people want to read that? And he made me trim it down and, and finally focus on um, what, what ended up in the book. And that I guess I've been seriously writing it for uh, two, two years before it, it, it's actually been published. But the interesting thing is I've just, as I said, I've just retired from my position and I've been going through all my old files, old notes, lecture notes, going back many, many years. And I, I realise now I've been writing this for 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, it's the stuff that's in there is reflected very much in the... Um, in, in the lectures I was giving when I first arrived, yes, it's changed a lot. I mean, we, we the science has moved on enormously since then, but the, the ideas, the, the, the interconnectedness of things, which I think, I hope comes through the book, um, are all there in my, in my lectures that I was quite taken aback when I found that.
0: All right, so let's jump right in. So can we start with a very basic and easiest question, I suppose. <laughs> what is a mass extinction event? the The,
1: the, the definition I use is um, a, a drop in diversity, a significant drop in diversity in more than one major group over a wide geographic area that is relatively fast. Now, not instantaneous, but fast, um, and. I, th- I think mass extinctions were first sort of brought into the, into absolute focus by by a, 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 group, a couple of paleontologists called Ray and Stanley, who published a paper when they plotted all the level of extinctions against time. And what they found two things. The first thing was, over time, it's actually become easier to survive on this planet. It, it, the, the rate of extinction has dropped from 500 million years ago to the present day. Mm. But superimposed on that, they found five really massive increases in in, um, extinction above the average background level. And they've become now known as the big five. Um, Since then, uh, I think a lot of people have been working on, on levels of extinction, and some people now recognize up to 19 major Uh, falls in biodiversity over the last 600 million years so they're not we're not we shouldn't confine it to the five although I use that term all the way through the um, through the book I do flag quite clearly that there are more than five it's just a, a nice easy way of referring to them big ones
0: so what are some of the ways and approaches that uh, you use and also scientific techniques to study the mass extinction events? Because presumably the species, they die all the time, don't they?
1: They do. Um, and, and far better uh, numerical paleontologists than I am have studied this. There are some, uh, I think I review about three of them in the book, some really major um, advances have been made in understanding the rate at which extinctions occur in the fossil record. And it's it's to do with the quality of the record improving once you hit 600 million years ago, it's to do with our ability to statistically analyze that record. And that's improving all the time. Um, And they're really looking at the number of uh, not necessarily species, because that's hard to do. um, But but higher level tax things like gender and families going extinct uh, over a period of time and of course the latest iteration of that is that there's a Chinese group have um, applied a supercomputer to the whole problem and have come up with what I think is is an extraordinarily detailed um, patterns of, of diversity changes over over the time um, so it's it's a matter of, of looking at the number of these groups going extinct per unit time. It's to do with our statistical ability to analyze this data and uh, to remove biases that are built into the record. And then finally, we're, we're starting to apply supercomputing to the whole thing. And I think that's going to be, um, really is going to open up the field enormously.
0: Does that include all of our biomes, uh, like terrestrial and aquatic?
1: It's... <laughs> That's that's a that's a, also a very astute observation. The fossil record is um, is biased, but it's biased in a very predictable way. We know that the majority of fossils that we find are marine and they're hard bodied, so we they're, they're mm-hmm. dominantly shellfish and, and and material like that. Um, we have very good records of terrestrial materials. That's spores and pollen, uh, vertebrates, dinosaurs, and that that sort of stuff. But undoubtedly, um, these records are biased towards marine fossils. Um, but I think there's enough, we understand enough now of the um, terrestrial records to, to see these things working in parallel. Um, it, it is a, a, as I said, it's a bias, but it's a bias we understand and can cope with.
0: So what is the earliest extinction event that we know of?
1: Um, I have to think back now, it's the end, uh, end of Devonian. Um, I have a, a, a thing about um, calling it uh, a mass extinction like the, the cretaceous tertiary boundary that <laughs> slipped into the wrong terminology uh, the, the, there used to be a this is a an side issue and i think it's a huge footnote in the book to, to cover it um it used to be called the cretaceous tertiary boundary that's when all the dinosaurs died and and it was colloquially known as the kt because they were the symbols for the um two boundaries but the powers that be have got rid of the tertiary now we have uh, the paleogene so it's now the KPG, and I really hate that. So it, I always refer to them the end. So we're talking about end, end Devonian, and Ordovician, and Permian, and Triassic, and Cretaceous. The end, of, end Ordovician is the first of the whoops. Am I? The end Ordovician is the first of the Big Five, and then it's end Devonian, end Permian, end Triassic, and end Cretaceous, and of course the end Permian is the big one that's uh, we're looking at estimates up to about 96% of at least marine animals going extinct at any one time and there are similar changes to on land but it's a little harder to um, actually say exactly how many are going extinct there.
0: So what are some of the extinctions that really fascinate you?
1: There's two that that fascinate me. One is, and again, I cover them in the book. One of them is is the end Permian, because it's so big. It it is just, I I really can't get my head around what the world would look like um, if you lose 96% of the species on it. Okay, that's mainly marine, but we know it affected the plants. We know it affected the uh, terrestrial animals. It, it, to to think that we're losing you know 65 96% of the species in a geological instant is it's just mind-boggling and of course there's the other one is the end cretaceous because um it is it is the most i guess the most popular mass mm-hmm. extinction it's where we lose all the uh, dinosaurs that walked on land um a massive changes in the oceans although the extinction rate there is probably 60 to 70 percent rather than the huge numbers at the mass of um, at, the, at the end of the permian
0: and what are some of the reasons that can lead to mass extinctions
1: Be- before I do that um, can I because it's easy to explain them if, if we look at it a bit broader sure. the other the other thing that runs through the book is this, this notion of the, of the Earth system. And it, it's, it's, it's a way of looking at the planet as a, as a, a whole. So we're looking at its mechanics of keeping us alive. It's, it's our life support system. And, and it, what it means is that we, we can divide the planet up into different sorts of reservoirs. We can look at the, um, Earth beneath our feet we can look at the atmosphere, we can look at the oceans, and we can look at the biosphere. And all of those interact, maintain climate at about the um, the level that, that we are, that can support life. And that's been happening since the end of the Cambrian, 500, 600 million years ago, from the beginning of the Cambrian rather. And, and each mass extinction seems to be associated with pushing that earth system out of equilibrium, and it, there's, there's a number of ways that's happened. Um, in the case of the end Permian, the we are it's forced into another equilibrium point, which is unsuitable for life, and the biosphere collapses through to what what is now generally acknowledged to be a major volcanic eruption. Um, it's called the Siberian Traps, and the numbers there are, are astronomical. The, the, the amount of lava and eruption that went on was huge huge amounts of co2 into the atmosphere the temperature goes up and the atmosphere was already very high in co2 because of the uh, the way the continents were arrived uh, arranged and uh, it, it didn't have the uh, the st- the geographic distribution we have today that would remove the carbon dioxide out the atmosphere we didn't have many tropical um weathering going much tropical weathering going on mm. so the atmosphere CO2 was already high the temperatures were high and suddenly you push into the atmosphere enormous amounts of CO2 so that the climate gets very very warm very fast the oceans become acidic because you're absorbing um CO2 into them um it's it become more anoxic uh, and, and and on top of that it's quite likely that these things called uh, clathrates melted a melted clathrates release um, methane and methane is a very, very powerful greenhouse gas. So the whole thing would be cycled through. Tethers around today they are on the deep parts of the ocean, and as long as it stays cold and kind um, of high pressure, they don't melt. But increase the temperature and they will. Um, and this triggers a shift in the in the Earth system's equilibrium, and the whole system just collapses in on itself. And it takes a while. To the system to come back as all the, the various components start working together to produce the um, equitable climate for, for life. Um, and it's similar at the end of the Cretaceous. We have another major um, eruption, the Deccan Traps in India. Again, massive eruption, huge amounts of CO2 in the atmosphere. So the climate was probably difficult. And then on top of that, you have this meteorite hitting at exactly the right time, and and pushing everything into the extinct into extinction, so it's it, it's it's a in, in some ways it's easy to say that all mass extinctions are caused by a shift in the equi- in the equilibrium point of a of a of the um, a system, but it's what triggers that shift that we're looking at. And I, I'll be honest. I think it's it's terrifying uh, to think that even when you look back on what happened at the end of the Permian, with a high CO two, uh, organic, uh, anoxic oceans, acidic oceans, it sounds very much like what's happening today. And we really don't need to want to go down that path.
0: So essentially, this um, disturbance in equilibrium can be brought about by different events, but the end result is kind of the the same which uh, yeah, ex- to,
1: exactly exactly <laughs> we're looking at a trigger um mm. for, for pushing this this forcing that pushes the system out of equilibrium and um i'd have to say we're not doing a good job of avoiding it at the moment
0: so does this also include the time uh, line where this equilibrium is disturbed for example during very fast changes so the life cannot adapt
1: uh, that that's, um, that's probably true we look at we look at, um, we look at the, there's, a, there's a point uh, called the paleocene eocene thermal maximum where the temperature suddenly rocketed up four degrees um, no one's quite sure why it happened it's, it's probably something to do with uh, uh, permafrost melting, releasing methane. But, um, at that point, it's very fast. It's a very rapid change. It didn't result in a mass extinction, although there are extinctions involved with it, but what it did do was change things like the distribution of animals, the tropical belts expanded. So all those, all those animals managed to track the, um, the changes. It's only when it becomes too fast and too far that these animals can't do it and uh, the equilibrium shifts and, and we have mass extinction. And how does the world look after
0: the mass extinction? What do we know from, uh, uh, from the history?
1: Uh, that's what I was saying earlier. I, I really can't imagine a world where you're looking at, 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 at say the end of the moment, 96% of, of, of animals and plants just disappearing. I mean, I've seen pictures of, of people trying to to illustrate it, and and one of them was a, a fully functioning reef before the um, before the extinction event, and after the extinction event, there's this sandy bottom with a couple of shells and maybe a fish swimming over it, and on land was, um, they had a picture of rotting vegetation that had died during the during the extinction event with these. Um, animals crawling all over them, um, looking very despondent, I'd have to say. So I, I, I just can't imagine it. I really I really can't see in my head what... what you look at a tropical reef today, and, and it's full of biodiversity. It's full of animals living in the crevices, corals, and yet all the reef, reefs were wiped out at the end of the Permian, and they didn't come back for 20 million years. Um, I just find that extraordinary. And as I said, I have no idea what... Well, I can imagine it, but it's 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 really horrific.
0: 20 million years. So does it take that long for the life to reinstall itself?
1: Not necessarily all life, but certainly the reefs did. Mm. Um, the reefs, uh, the, in, in the late Permian, the reefs were dominated by two fossil groups, two uh, coral groups, uh, tabulates and rugosa corals, and they just wiped out. And it took. 20 million years for a new group these sclerotidians to evolve other times it's it's faster i think um there, are, there is evidence that following the end of the cretaceous it's about a million years to mm. um to come back online but you've got to remember that in terms of a human time span a million years years is an enormous length of time i mean uh, I think I, I say somewhere in the book that I, I, one of the things I do is try to teach first years what it, what I mean by geological or deep time and trying to get over to people what a million years looks like or feels like or, or whatever is just so difficult. It's, it's more time than, um, I don't know, it, it's hard to describe. Um, I mean, the pyramids are what Four or five thousand years old, and, and but that's only a fraction of the time it takes for a million years to exapse. So, yeah, but, uh, geologically, we can say it was quick, it, it took a million years, but in human time frame, that's a long time.
0: Well, this brings us to the joyous situation nowadays. So, what <laughs> is going on?
1: Um, I, I, I think one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is is to set the modern biodiversity crisis into a historical setting and um, I don't like the term sixth extinction and, and there's a couple of reasons for that one is um, and, and um, it's, it's probably the most trivial reason is um, it, we, we've had more than five we've had 19 or whatever who, whoever however you count them. So the six is, is not right, but it's a nice, catchy, uh, sort of easy to grasp idea. But more than that, it, it, it links it too strongly with the previous mass extinctions. And it sort of abrogates our own responsibility for it. We are undoubtedly entering a mass extinction. We are, are, are the rates at which things are going extinct have lifted enormously since humans have been on the planet um we are we are as i said it's it's quite terrifying to think that some of the things we're doing sounds exactly like what happened at the end of the permian but uh, i don't think everything's lost um the i hope that the book is is at least at the end positive and 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 say so we have time not a lot but we have a little bit of time to um to reverse the situation, and it, it, the book's been reviewed lots, lots of times, and mostly positively. But this one one uh, critic said, "You know, it, it's it, it's nice, but he doesn't give any solutions to what's going on." But since since the book is published, there's been a couple of papers I've come across that, that really do outline what we need to do to avoid pushing the Earth system out of it, its equilibrium point or at least not too far out of its equilibrium point. First up, the, I, the the last IPPC report indicates that we've gone too far to simply return to where we were and we, what we have to do is to stabilise the planet in, in its current conditions and the way we do that is to um, reduce emissions. That's undoubtedly uh, a key factor. We have to um, make sure that everything that is carbon is getting locked up in, like the northern, pardon me, the northern hemisphere forests are a great source sink of carbon. They've got to be preserved. And in areas that have been degraded, we have to bring them back um, onto um, a, a better footing than they are now. And... It doesn't take much of those, it only needs about, uh, some modelling suggests 30% of, of the badly affected areas that we've cleared and damaged. If we can re- repair those, then we'll be um, on the way to actually avoiding slipping into a, a shift in your in equilibrium point. And it's, it's not easy, um, but I think the, the fossil record shows what happens if we don't do it. We're looking at, a, at, at a, a very significant extinction event. The fossil record also shows that if we do do that, we can bring it back. We can shift things back towards a more um, even equilibrium point than we that we, ha- we are dealing with at the moment.
0: I suppose that we don't really have one million years to spare <laughs> for waiting no, for them
1: to return. We don't. We don't. And, and there's some numbers I quote in the book which. Um, our estimates by uh, a group who, who looked at um, what would happen if we just didn't do anything and then what would happen if we did something about it. And, and they were looking at the extinctions of uh, vertebrate fossils or vertebrate animals. And their, their estimates were that if we didn't do anything, um, we would slip to a 75% extinction rate in about 270 years. But if we did something about it and we stopped those extinctions happening, then that extinction rate pushes out to sometimes thousands of years. So I think the thing, the thing we've got to look at is um, those numbers are probably, well, we were done in the late 80s, so they probably could be revised nowadays, but... It, what it shows is okay. We've we've got a little bit of time if we don't do anything right away, but we get much more time if we act. And I guess that's what ultimately the the, the story of the book is. You've got to, if we act and actually try to pull back on on the the, the extinctions that are happening all around us, um, we will do something. We 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 must preserve the biodiversity biodiversity of this planet it, it's a key factor in the um in the earth system is is the uh, by is the biosphere and we must protect that at all costs so uh, I, I don't know what's happening elsewhere in the world but in new zealand there's a lot of people um offsetting their carbon with their fly by planting pine trees well it's very good for a point but that isn't biodiversity and that's a monospecific area. What we need is proper diversity with functioning ecosystems that allow the operation of the uh, Earth system.
0: So scientists do these predictive models and how accurate are they? Are they based on uh, some of the data from uh, previous extinctions?
1: Let's look, I'm in no means an expert on, on, on the modelling. I know that um, I work with people who model Antarctic ice sheets for example I know that they spend a lot of time making sure that their data fits mm. with geological time and, and what's happening in the geological past. With the, the ones I'm talking about they've actually looked at um, the rate at which fossils have gone extinct uh, since humans have been on the planet and projecting those into the future. That's more or less how um a lot of those figures would come up with things like the rate of extinctions are based on uh things that have happened over the last 10,000 fifteen thousand years um for the when they're projected into the future these are slightly different techniques they actually um work out the rate of things are going extinct now and project that into the future but um yeah they do require um a, a fair bit of work from the fossil record. It's not easy stuff. I mean, it's, we don't have a great record of um, the last ten thousand years, but it's it's all we have. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you.
0: So in general, we tend to focus on this sort of eccentric megafauna and uh, big fossils. So how important for us uh, to think about extinction of say insects and smaller critters?
1: I think that's absolutely imperative we we tend to i mean when you talk to someone about um mass extinctions um they all want to talk about dinosaurs uh, but in fact it, it's things like insects and and fungi and plants that maintain that ecosystem maintain the biodiversity that allows the earth system to to operate fully you know, you could probably survive without dinosaurs, but you probably couldn't survive without insects. Mm. Um, so I think it's it's quite... obvious. Yeah, let me go back. It's quite understandable that people um, want to look at dinosaur extinctions that are big and they're charismatic, but you mustn't lose track of the fact that we're looking at a whole ecosystem that's wiped out in these mass extinctions, not just... Um, Uh, dinosaurs or flying reptiles, and they are vitally important. I mean, I think it's it's become increasingly obvious that that insects, of all things, are absolutely imperative to maintaining an ecosystem in balance.
0: This is so interesting, especially when you think that even today, if we lose some of the insect species, that could mean completely disastrous consequences for for humans, like bees, for example.
1: Bees, bees are an obvious one. I mean, we're we're, uh, in New Zealand are encouraging now to be, to plant plants that that will flower and attract bees because we need bees to pollinate and to um, uh, uh, transfer the pollen around the place. Um, it, 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 there's no part of the ecosystem that I can think of that we could really easily do without. it is it is a a whole that integrates and works together. Um, and we just can't afford to lose a significant portion of it. But I think insects are really underestimated and and we know that a lot of them that there is good evidence we lost a lot of extinction, a lot of insects at the end of the Permian.
0: Is it easy to estimate the losses of insects? So, for example, compared to the bigger animals, of whose bones we can find.
1: Yes. Again, we come back to the limitations of the fossil mm. record. It's, it's easier to to, um, to to collect bones than it is to collect mm-hmm. insects. Although there have been some really good efforts at, at documenting insect diversity through time, and in one of the earlier. Incarnations of the book. There is actually, I actually reproduce diagrams showing the differences between insects and plants through time, and they they have mass extinctions at the same time as all the other groups. But mm. yeah, it's it's much harder because as you, uh, they're just not as easy to preserve. In fact, plants probably have a better record than um insects because spores and pollen are very easy to preserve. They're made of a substance that is um, extremely unreactive and um easily specific as i said we get them out of the rock by dissolving the rock in hideous acids so it's it's odd but we can have a good record of plant material but we don't have a good record of 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 insects
0: so one of the arguments that is often made nowadays is apart from just prevention of uh, the change in a climate, we can think about mitigation, for example, de-extinction and bringing all of these uh, species that were lost sometime in the future. And we have even the banks that uh, uh, store, you know, the cells and reproductive cells as well, even somatic cells of uh, different species. So what do you think about that?
1: Um, I may be a little of a heretic in this situation. I think de-extinction is, is, is something we can't afford. Um, I think we have far more pressing problems than bringing back mammoths um, and they wouldn't be mammoths anyway there would be some sort of hybrid between whatever mammoth genes we can recover and whatever we want to put them in I think if I look at there is as a paleontologist there is nothing I'd like to see more than, than a mammoth striding across a, the steppes of Russia or somewhere like that but i think there are far more pressing problems and i'm not sure bringing mammoths or dinosaurs back to life would would solve our problems i i'd I'd much rather see us put effort and time into preserving what we already have um rather than bringing these things at least in some form back as i said it's not a particular popular viewpoint i've got some people who i've got some friends who are very keen on the idea but i i think it's a luxury that we can't afford.
0: So what is the importance of bringing the public into this discussion and even raising the awareness of people about uh, the rates of uh, at which we're losing our species
1: now? This Ultimately, this is the reason I wrote the book. Um, the book is not a scientific um, treatise or it's not a textbook. It, it's a book that I hope the general public can read and understand. I, I, I think the more we can inform the public, the more they understand the situation they're in and possibly ways out of it, then the more pressure they can put on governments and industries to do something. I, I think if, if, if they don't understand or they don't believe, then it, it's, there's no reason for governments or or industry in particular to to shift. Mm. So, as I said, the the reason that I think I aimed the book where I did is to inform the public, because I think an informed public is the key to bringing things into focus and forcing uh, change onto onto government. Um, Without that, I, I get very down on the whole situation.
0: And where do you want to see us head into the future? (laughs) That's
1: a good question. Well, um, first up, we have to meet the Paris Accord. I don't think there's any choice about that at all. Um, But on top of that, we then have to start thinking about how we can we've shifted the planet a little bit in in, the, in its, its equilibrium we, we have to stabilize it where it is bringing the emissions down to the Paris accord is one thing preserving the biodiversity we have is the second thing and once we've done that then perhaps we will maintain the situation we're in um, we don't want to go any further into, into slipping into further into the um uh, disequilibrium because we don't want to heat the planet up too far at all Um, it's not going to be an easy job. And and as I said, there there are times when I sit and think, you know, is it it possible? But I think if we all give up, it'd be really quite a a difficult situation. I think there's a lot of entrenched opinions and beliefs out there that need to change, particularly among industries who are um, either dodging the, the, the changes they have to make or ignoring them. And, and a lot of governments aren't doing um, what, they, what they need to do. I'm actually Australian, I was, I was educated in Australia and I was um, delighted at the last Australian election, if I'm allowed to get a little political on this thing, um, where the, the two dominant parties um, have been almost eclipsed by a group that they're calling teal candidates that reflect what the public are saying about um climate change and the need for for action and they're going to hold quite a lot of sway in, in the in the government and i think that is just amazingly good and i i, I hope that sort of trend can continue around the world that that we with the governments will shift probably due to public pressure to start Really acting on, on the promises they made at, at uh, in Paris and since then.
0: So then you're quite optimistic that uh, we will be able to come together sort of on a global scale.
1: At three o'clock in the morning, sometimes I'm not that optimistic, but um <laughs> uh yeah, I I I think if if you're not optimistic, uh you don't want to give up on this thing. It's it's the planet's too beautiful place. To, to just say no, we're going to give up and just live for God knows how many years before we we, we find the place uninhabitable. Um, I, I don't think we can give up. I think the human race tends to be flexible enough in the end that 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 we can we can actually make the changes. It's just we're slow at doing it, hmm. and the the slower we are, the more difficult it is. The bigger the changes we're going to have to make. Um, to to overcome the situation. And I think that's really the crux of the problem. We've got to act more rapidly than we're doing now.
0: And what discoveries in your research and your journey in writing your book, Extinctions, surprised you the most?
1: Um, I I think of all the things that surprised me in there um, was actually looking at the red list of extinctions. Uh, And this really cemented this idea that we're not looking at the the, the sixth extinction. Um, the, the red list is a, a, an amazing piece of um, documentation that, that that scientists are putting together that that really does um, look at at the at animals that are extinct and the rate at which they're going extinct. And I and and uh, I expected enormous numbers. I, uh, extinctions, 20% extinction. And none of them came out at that level. Um, I think um, mammals, this is stuff I did in 2020, mammals are running at about 1.5% of of currently known species have gone extinct. Um, Insects, just over half percent of species have gone extinct. So we're not, we haven't we haven't killed off enormous numbers of, of of animals yet, but the rate at which they're going extinct, judging from what we're getting from the fossil record, is high. So we're not we've we've succeeded in in causing extinctions t- to a large number, but not a devastating number yet. That, that I guess that's what's giving me the hope that we can we can turn this thing around but the rate at which they're going extinct is increasing. And that's, that's what we have to pull back on. And when we do that, then we, we're, we get more time to um, to actually fix the whole situation.
0: The way you put it, we haven't yet killed off. It's quite visceral. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it, well, it, it, it's, 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 we're often very polite. We talk about extinctions, but we're killing them off. Um, you know, I. I One of my saddest pictures I've seen is a a picture of a a thylacine, which is an Australian marsupial wolf, pacing the cage in um, a zoo in in Hobart, and it's the last thylacine that ever existed, and it died, um, probably through neglect at the zoo, actually, Uh, at least that's the rumour. And and that's it, that species has gone, it's been killed off, and we It was killed off, not because that one species, that one individual died, but because farmers were worried that it was killing their sheep, so they were shooting them. The last thylacine died in the wild well before then. And that's inescapably sad to see this this amazing animal stalking the cage, knowing that's it, that's the last thylacine on the planet, and it, it didn't last much longer. Uh, And I just don't want to see that again. And we we can rattle off others. The passenger pigeon was the same, the dodo. Um, I just don't want any more animals to go extinct if we can avoid it.
0: And then on maybe a slightly upbeat note, so do you have any favourite extinct animals that
1: uh, were really Uh, cool? (laughs) So many, so many. We're actually putting together a a public talk here um, called the Time Traveler's Guide to Not Being Eaten. Um, and we're we're looking at apex predators through time. And and I've um I've got a review. It's for, for children. And, and uh, we were going to look at the Tyrannosaurus Rex, but that's a bit blase. So I'm I'm actually doing the Deanonychus, which um I think is a lovely critter. Um if you've seen <coughs> pardon me, Jurassic Park, the animal they call Velociraptor there isn't Velociraptor, because Velociraptor is about the size of a turkey. Um, Deinonychus is, that's a Deinonychus, and they're smart and, and, and whatnot. Um, but the, the current, the reason I like them so much at the moment is the current reconstructions puts feathers all over them. So you've got this feathered dinosaur, and I think that's just a fantastic image. But if I had to name my favourite fossil on the planet, it's um, it's Archaeopteryx, the um, the bird from Solonoff and limestone. I think that's just absolutely beautiful, and the Berlin specimen, which is complete and has the um, the head attached, which the London specimen doesn't, is is just stunningly beautiful with its feathers and uh, this halfway house between uh, thrapsid dinosaurs dinosaurs and and, um, and birds. It's just beautiful.
0: Yeah, and the recent findings about the feathers and their colors as well, it just really puts you I, in a different
1: world. It is, I, 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 again, this is uh, one of those things about paleontology it constantly amazes me. And, and I think being stuck on fossil algae, maybe I don't get quite as involved, but imagine how the, the imagination it took to try and work out how to pick the colors of feathers. And they're they're doing it quite regularly now. And I think it's just astounding. I think it's lovely.
0: Well, this has been a truly fascinating and insightful discussion. So what are you focusing on now? And what will be your next project?
1: As I said, I had this major project with with colleagues in in the Netherlands at Utrecht University. that's been going on for far too long, but so that's the microscope work. Um, beyond that, I've got, um, and that's quite recent. That's that's um, last couple of hundred thousand years. But there's a, a section of rock in Australia we we want to look at again, and that's looks across the Eocene-Oligocene the boundary about thirty odd million years ago, and it's a it's an important boundary in that it, it's when the ice sheets formed an Antarctica of the permanent ice sheets for the last time. Um, so we were we were a bit stuck where we couldn't get over to um, sample it ourselves. So we're, because of the pandemic, um, but uh, with that lifting, we may go over and, and and resample the section and look at the um, microfossils in there, and that. That's a, a, a really lovely section to work on.
0: Yeah, I actually got a question. Maybe it's a little bit off topic, but I was always wondering about Antarctica. So there is a ground underneath, isn't it? Is it below the the ocean level or above
1: or? Antarctica splits into two parts. If, if you look at a, at a map, it's hard to do without pictures, but um, there's a mountain range that runs Across almost the entire continent, called the Transantarctic Mountains. Now, if you look with Greenwich up, the to the west of the Transantarctic Mountains is a thing called the West Antarctic Ice Sheet, and that is um, not that's grounded below sea level. So that if it lifts, water there's water underneath it. On the other side is the big ice sheet, that's the East Antarctic Ice Sheet, and that's four kilometres, four and a half kilometres thick. Um and that's um much more stable in the West. Um I was sitting having a, a beer with a, a a very, very good um Antarctic ice sheet modeler and he it it just he was talking away to someone else and he, he just happened to say, Oh and the current climate, the West Antarctic sheet is cactus, it's gone. And he's got no hope of it um surviving. And that's largely because it's um it's not resting on it, it's, it is seated below sea level, whereas the other one isn't. Um, and if that melts, we're looking at, I think, five meters of sea level rise, so we do not looking forward to that one.
0: Oh, well, we, we cannot afford
1: five meters. No, you don't want the other one to go, because it's nearly 60.
0: And then is it possible to find any fossils in Arctark- Antarctica?
1: Not in the ice. Oh, well, that's not true. You get a few um, fossils in the ice, but the, the projects I've been involved with actually drill through the ice. And then in, in ones I've been involved with, the, the ice is floating on, on um, the sea and, and then it's about, you know, 700 metres of water depth and they drill into the sediment underneath it. And this, the fossils I look at come from those there's, there's, um, sedimentary layers underneath the ocean. Um, and I've, uh, I've been lucky enough to go down and actually uh, collect the samples for study and, and actually study them down there too. Took my microscope with me.
0: Oh, wow. Maybe that's uh, your next book? <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, I don't know. If I, if I do it, sure, I'd write another book on. Um, there's a, a chapter in the current book on, on the megafauna extinctions, the ones that happened. Between 50 and 10,000 years ago, the mammoths and the saber tooth cats and, and stuff like that. And it, it's very complicated and changing all the time. I've often wondered if that couldn't be expanded into a, another book as well. Mm.
0: And what would be the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your book?
1: Um, my work, um, I guess it's the best way would be to look at my. Uh, University's website. I think I'm still on there. Um, the book is available throughout um, uh, Amazon Book Depository, Cambridge Bookseller. Um, it's available both as a uh, uh, electronic and um, hard copy. If you're living in New Zealand, um, I will be at the Auckland Writers' Festival in August giving a talk, um, and hopefully the book will be available there.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you very much. It's been enjoyable.